This is Radio Free Bay Ridge. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Radio Free Bay Ridge. Today our community turned up against hate in memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Over 480 of our family members, neighbors, and loved ones marched and spoke and listened and turned up. So without further ado, let's tune in. We'll start in the gym of the Salam Arabic Lutheran Church. And uh, right now what I'm going to do is introduce our speaker who's going to kick us off, our very own Bay Ridge, (laughs) wonderful, amazing woman, (laughs) the best badass in the world, (laughs) Linda Sarsour. That's what I love doing every single day. It's what I do for a living. I'm so honored and grateful and humbled to be here in my own neighborhood with my neighbors, ready to march in the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Before we do that, my neighbors and I have to get on the same page. And we have to understand who Dr. Martin Luther King was and what he was marching for and what you are marching for today in 2018. Dr. Martin Luther King was a black radical revolutionary. 67% of the American public 50 years ago was not with Dr. Martin Luther King, nor were they with the civil rights movement. Dr. King was vilified and smeared, and he was a target of Pro and the U.S. government. J. Edgar Hoover, who was the FBI director at the time, called Dr. Martin Luther King one of the most dangerous men in America. So when we march today, we will not march in the whitewashed legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King that makes the status quo feel comfortable, And what should be very alarming to all of you is when conservatives and Republicans and white supremacists and those in our opposition are quoting Dr. Martin Luther King today on his birthday. That tells me that people do not understand who Dr. Martin Luther King and those people are the obstacle to the dream that Dr. Martin Luther King had that has not been actualized 50 years after his assassination at the very young age of 39. Who they would have been 50 years ago during the civil rights movement. I asked my neighbors here in Bay Ridge and in Brooklyn, who are you today in 2018? Sisters and brothers, we have neighbors, undocumented people, who are living in fear of deportation. 800,000 young people in our country who are DACA recipients, who literally are in fear of what is to come when their DACA status is expired. We have Muslims in this very community who are separated from their families by a Muslim ban because someone is saying and deeming one family is worthy and another is not. Sisters and brothers, we 
are living in poverty and who have to experience discrimination every single day. Donald Trump did not introduce racism to us, misogyny, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia. Donald Trump is the, is the symptoms of what this country has been plagued with since the very days of its founding. So when you march today, I want you to reflect on the legacy of those whose shoulders you stand on. There is a reason that you can stand here in this room today as a woman with a right to vote and a right to your reproductive rights. There is a reason today that your grandparents were able to immigrate to these United States of America. There is somebody who sacrificed for you to be in this space today. The question I want you to ask yourself as you are marching to the Beit al-Maqdis Islamic Center, what are you willing to sacrifice for generations of young people to come who are going to look back on 2016, 17, and 18 and say, where in the hell were the American people when they put an American fascist in the White House who's a racist, misogynist, sexist, Islamophobe, xenophobe? Where were you? And I want you to be able to say this. I stood up. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't intimidated. I stood up for my children, for my neighbors, and I stood up in the face of opposition regardless of what the consequences were. Because in the past, no one cared about what people had to say about them. You want to be able to sleep well at night and look your children in the eye and say, I stood up for you. I stood up for your friends in your school. I stood up for black women and native women and Muslim women and undocumented women in our community. So today, we are one community. And we are gonna show all our neighbors in Bay Ridge the beautiful colors that we represent, the religions, the sexual orientations, our different professional backgrounds. We are taking our beautiful children along with us, marching in the legacy of those who came before us. And I want to be really clear, we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King, but let's not forget the women of the civil rights movement who have not... Patriarchy is also manifested in the way that we tell our history. So let's not forget Ella Baker, the architect of the civil rights movement.
this in the interim, there are communities who are counting on you to block the discriminatory policies that are impacting brown, black, and poor communities in these United States of America. And let me say this to you. I remember a few weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C., protesting the tax bill. And I was standing there engaging in civil disobedience with people in wheelchairs, people with disabilities, seniors who are 85 years old who are putting their bodies on the line for all of you. So let us honor that we are in a moment where the most directly impacted people are on the front line. The question is, where is everybody else? Where is the silent majority when we need them? The reason I asked about the silent majority is that we live in a country where the silent majority has sat back and allowed really horrible things to happen to people. Japanese internment was only 75 years ago. Many of you in this room might have been alive 75 years ago. I don't blame those or those in the opposition or those that went and rounded up Japanese Americans on their own. I blame those in the silent majority who turned a blind eye to Japanese internment in these United States of America. I blame the silent majority in our country that allows the United States to hold 25% of the world's prison population, what we call mass incarceration, which is modern day slavery, on your watch in 2018. So let us commit today as we march that we will no longer be part of the silent majority. We will be loud for justice, we will be loud for communities, and we will stand boldly with the most marginalized people amongst us. You guys fired up?
Saturday, Saturday. As people know, the Women's March is going to be commemorating our anniversary, our one-year anniversary since the beginning of the resistance under this Trump administration in a woman's-led, what last year on January 21st, it was the largest single-day protest in U.S. history that was led by women, many of whom women of color. This year, we're commemorating our anniversary with a very bold message. We will win in 2008, and our campaign is called Power to the Polls, and I want to see Bay Ridge take its power to the polls in 2018. Me personally, I'm going to be in Vegas. But I'm not going to Vegas to have fun. The Women's March National is holding our official anniversary in the state of Nevada. Why Nevada? Because Nevada is a swing state. And Nevada has the potential to flip districts. And it is, is a, it is a state that will send a very strong message to this administration and those in our political opposition that women are strategic, that we're not going to go yell in Washington, D.C. just to get our frustrations out, that we're going to be strategic and put forth an electoral strategy that's going to win districts from California to New York, from Alabama to Michigan. And not only that, because I want you to say I was there when Linda said this. We're also going to make history in 2018. Michigan is going to elect Michigan, the state of Michigan, is going to elect the first Muslim governor in these United States. Georgia, Georgia is going to elect the first black woman governor in these United States. woman governor in the state of Idaho. I like to do positive attraction. You put the word out there, you declare it, you put some positive thoughts towards it, and it's going to happen. So let's be safe. Turn around. The doors are, as you can see, it's going to be like a funnel. There are steps there. Watch, folks. Take care of each other. I love you, and I look forward to winning with you in 2018. So with that, the march was underway, going down Fifth Avenue, down to 62nd Street, stretching at times over five to six blocks long. So let's listen in now on some of the chants, audio, and music of the rude mechanical orchestra who were kind enough to join us in the march.
wrapped up at the Beit El Maktis Islamic Center on 62nd and 6th, the site of racist vandalism in November of last year. First to speak was Dr. Jobber. I can't thank you enough for coming out with this call with us. But the good cause which you are reaching out for is beyond that call or that fear which is in, induced by, whether it is by wither or by propaganda, or by people who are saying that certain segment of our community does not wear the equal right protection. So those who are vulnerable, those who are vulnerable are seeking our help, our standing together. In front of new tyranny in the White House, who wants to put Americans against each other. We are one people, one community, united and supporting each other. Thank you for coming. And just one note to let you know that the first people who migrated in our faith early in the 
prophethood of, of Muhammad وسلم, they went to Abyssinia, Ethiopia. The ruler there was a Christian king. And the prophet chose his place as a protection, as a sanctuary for the new Muslims who left Mecca after being kicked out of their faith and they went to be protected by a Christian king. So that welcoming from different people of faith for other obsessed faith is not new. America was based on that. Now how can we turn our back to what have been the legacy of this country? How dare some people hijack this ideology to the new supremacy for certain people? That's not acceptable, not by faith, not by common sense, not by human beings. Saying that, I'm going to introduce now our, um, the master ceremony for this event. Uh, this is Rama Isa Ibrahim. She is the executive director of the Arab American Association. And thank you again for your coming. Everybody else is like 10 feet taller than me. <laughs> um, thank you everyone for joining us here today. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is our third annual Bay Ridge MLK March. And my name is Rama Issa, and I'm the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York. ANY is a grassroots organization that serves the Arab American and Arab immigrant communities in Brooklyn and across the city. Um, Dr. King once said that we are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation. And we at the Arab American Association take that as a calling, uh, to speak for those who are most vulnerable amongst us, to stand for those who fall victims to a broken system. So today is a very important day um, to recognize and celebrate the legacy and a call towards justice that has yet to be honored. So I want to start by thanking all the organizations that have come together to make today possible. Bay Ridge for Social Justice, Fight Back Bay Ridge, South Brooklyn Progressive Resistance, South Brooklyn DSA, NYC DSA Political Committee, the Take On Hate Campaign, and us from the Arab American Association. Like to thank um, the organizations that have endorsed this march, uh, Mass Youth Center, Labor for Palestine, Jews for Palestinian Right of Return, ISO Brooklyn, uh, Peace Action Bay Ridge, Brooklyn for Peace, and Atlas DYF. All the young people from Atlas in the house. So another hand to all these folks who put so much love and commitment to make today possible.
Okay Day, uh, we often celebrate and recite the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, but today we're called together to honor and celebrate King's blueprint for justice that he outlined in one of the most controversial speeches that he has given, Beyond Vietnam, where he calls us to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. And those are our themes today. So on April 4th of 1967, Dr. King recited this speech at the Riverside Church, which is not very far away from here. And the country was greatly divided back then, very much like it is today. Um, there's a paragraph in Dr. King's speech where he lays out the connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle of black folks here at home. And he starts by saying how he felt a sense of hope after the poverty program. He called it the new beginnings. But that our society had gone mad over war, and he knew that our country would not invest in the poor and the vulnerable here at home, but in adventures overseas. And militarization is the enemy of the poor. It's a weapon that keeps us oppressed. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. True compassion, he says, is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. These words... <laughs> these words are as true today as they were many years ago when Dr. King first spoke them. Because a system that criminalizes young black and brown folks is a system that needs restructuring. A system that calls sanctuary, but cannot keep ICE agents from our places of employment, our courts, our homes, is a system that needs restructuring. A system that criminalizes poor people is a system that needs restructuring. A system that denies millions of those suffering across the world a safe haven is a system that needs restructuring. A system that stars our kids of quality education. A system that sees healthcare as a luxury. A system that treats black people as second class citizens. A system that cuts taxes to the rich and allows corporations to dictate our laws is a system that needs restructuring. And a system that allows for the President of the United States to be accused of sexual assault and misconduct by 19 women and still sit in the highest office of this land is a system that needs restructuring. Dr. King once said, the war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. Trump is, a, is but a symptom to the largest problem in America. We have a movement of white nationalism and fascism that has crept into our mainstream culture, and this movement endangers the fabric of our nation. We forget sometimes that elected officials are supposed to represent us, 
work for us. Make sure that our needs are being met, that our concerns are being addressed. We tend to forget the immense power that we have as people to enact change. We have been building community down here in Bay Ridge for decades. We have been organizing across religious lines and cultural lines and ethnic lines. And together, we have far more numbers than they do. We've built a coalition across communities, stood for one another during the first Muslim ban, when we all organically rushed to JFK and airports across the country. We fought valiantly against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. We are currently swarming the offices of our elected officials and flooding their phone lines, demanding a clean dream act. We are accompanying our undocumented families to 26 Federal Plaza to ensure that they're released to their loved ones safely. We're working towards accountability. We're working towards accountability in our criminal justice system and demanding transparency from our law enforcement. And we're standing hand in hand with all survivors of sexual violence and sexual harassment. together and there's something very special about that about building intersectional coalitions and working from the grassroots up addressing the immediate needs of our community working closely with allies and building strong bonds of fellowship loving and caring and protecting one another I have listened to Dr. King's uh, delivery of Beyond Vietnam over and over and over again I found so many similarities between then and now and what resonated with me the most was a part where he said that, and I quote, they are the times for real choice and false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own fully. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions. But we must all protest. And this haunts me a little bit because the systemic problems that we have been fighting, the problems that break the fabric of our nation are still unsolved. And I am reminded that the fight for justice is never over. It's just always evolving and changing. We are at a crossroads at a time when we decide what actions we're willing to take to protect each other and to love one another. And are we going to sit idly on the sidewalks while our country falls apart? Or are we going to stick to our convictions like Dr. King calls upon us and protest and put our bodies on the line? I know what I'm going to be doing in the next three years, seven if necessarily, because I believe that we will win. 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 Thank you so much, guys. Yes, we will win. So we're going to get this program started. We have amazing speakers here today. Um, I want to bring up to the stage Nono, who's a feminist South African poet and writer who has published her own book of poetry. 
Stone Vagina. She will be sharing a piece with us today titled, I Am Being. Please welcome Yoni. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm really honored to be here today. Um, I, uh, I was born on June 16. Tupac's birthday, and um, it's also Youth Day in South Africa. It is a national holiday that commemorates the protests of 1976 by the youth of South Africa, for those that don't know, that marched all across South Africa protesting the oppression of black people, specifically the education system. Um, quickly, things quickly got out of hand um, by the end of the day, and more than 500 people died that day, and a lot of them were children, high school children. One of those victims was Hector Pearson, Peterson. He died from a bullet wound that, despite what the policemen say, were ricocheted off of a wall. It was never intended for him. Evidence suggests otherwise. He was 12 years old, and he died fighting for education, for equality, oppression, against oppression. So today I am honored to be in Brooklyn, New York on Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Day fighting for oppression, for, against oppression, equality, and education. Now, what if we stripped away at these man-made ideas about race and fostered by a political culture that promotes segregation, hatred, and intolerance? What if we stripped away religion and ethnicity and we actually just saw each other as human beings? I think we might get closer to treating each other a little bit better. This piece I'm going to do today is about identity. It is about being proud about who you are, where you come from, and what you look like, despite the oppression that people of color have had to endure, that today still affects our psyche. It is also a declaration of power, of strength, of beauty, of pride. And it is also an invitation to be better with one another. I am being. Before I am any gender, race, marital or financial status. A pick from the crop, deemed a success or a flop. First, I am being. They say, my, what is it that you speak? Oh, this? That. That is the soul of the sand preserved in my tribe that I carry with me in my name, prayers, and cafeteria. That is the soul of Africa, living, expressing, celebrating. That is me being. They say, my, how wide you are. Oh, these? These are only hips that fade into my waist, where little legs wrap around them as I carry them on my back on the trek to the river that to us life delivers. No, sir, these hips are not wide. They are just right. They say I am free, free to do just as I please. I doubt my Uncle Ed would agree, sitting at home pinned to a wheelchair with a wage freeze because he thought his employee would protect him in his freedom of speech. Clause, not if it incriminates Mr. Peach. So spare me your hollow banter. Your suits don't disguise you as the cause. They just further let me know you also steal bonds. 
They spin several swindle stories, arguing racial constructions of race as godly facts, all in an attempt to confuse and infuse me into the melting pot until assimilation has me hating my kinks and pressing locks. Man, they say a lot of this and that. And if they think the bright lights are gonna make me forget, they don't know me like that. They may look at me like some foreign body on this earth, misplaced, taking space with little worth, smiling in my face while conniving for the demise of my physical and spiritual space. They do not phase me, they will not change me. Attention, attention, Vogue, Cosmo, and people. No, no, kings cannot be fixed. That silly idea you can quickly dismiss. Because like Nelson Mandela said, They can sideline me, and it is a cause he is willing to die for. They may sideline me, they may confine me, hell even kill me, but they will remember me. Because I will be that itch they cannot scratch, found in history books banned because they were exhibitions of truth. I will be that groan that after dark keeps them up at home, as my ghost lurks in the corridor, searching for the keys to the doors they slammed so many a time in my face because of the name of my race. I will be that face in famous photography halls with captions protesting, killed by truth, died too soon, the color of Columbus blood. I will forever live on, on street signs and national holidays, because fear is the fuel that ruffled my feathers and toughened their most valued and wanted possession, my mind. They will not phase me. They will not change me. Because from Africa's poorest shacks, to the villas of Naples, to the Upper East Side, where milk and honey flows, I have always known who I am. Sure and unashamed, with the answer always the same. Before I am any gender, race, marital, or financial status. A pick from the crop, deemed a success or a flop. First, I am being. I am human being. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So as you can see, there's a lot of young people here today. And the next speakers I'm going to bring up are, you're going to hear from, from, you know, impacted, directly impacted communities, directly impacted folks from our communities. So I'm going to bring up three young ladies. Um, Sumaya Awad, who's a longtime Palestinian activist, who's here with the New York Socialists. Yasmin Kamel, who is a member of Bay Ridge for Social Justice and the International Socialist Organization. Look at these amazing young women here. And then we're going to hear also from our little activist, Malak Romain from the Arab American Association. And she's going to read to us a little speech. All right, so, Sumaya. My name is Sumaya, um, and like Dom mentioned, I'm with the New York City Socialists. People can check us out over there at the table um, afterwards. So I want to start today by reminding us why this march is happening here in Bay Ridge, of all places in New York City, because I think it's really important for us to remember that the Bay Ridge community, the Arab and Muslim community in Bay Ridge, has faced a lot of struggle over the last two decades in particular. This is a community that after 9-11 was surveilled, 
was terrorized. Many people were deported, were detained. Many continue to be detained and questioned every month, every year. And this is a community that in that time, in that time span, in the early 2000s and, and up until today, persevered and continued to struggle. This is a community that helped lead the charge against the war in Iraq in 2003. This is a community that was part of the 2006 immigrants' rights movement. And I mention all of this because today we're facing a new onslaught, right? We are facing these deportations, the detentions, the raids. We're facing these bans, these attacks on Muslims, on black people, on immigrants, on undocumented people. And we need to remind ourselves of these past struggles, and to remind ourselves of the lessons of these struggles. And I want to just go back just one year, not even that far, that far back, just one year ago around this time, people came together and we showed that collectively we have so much power and we can force, whether it's our mayor, our president, or another elected leader, we can force them to say yes even when they want to say no. Think about the airport protests. Think about the Women's March. Think about the Day Without Immigrants. Think about the bodega strikes, which were started by people in this community. All of these things... And at that same day, the same day as the bodega strike, there was also a huge Black Lives Matter strike for Marley Graham, an 18-year-old who was murdered ruthlessly by the New York Police Department. And I, I remind you of all of these things because they were not that far long ago. And we're starting a new year. And all of this, wow. Ah, oh, okay. I'm going to skip a lot. I bring all of this up because this is why we're here today. We're here, to say, we're here today to say that the racist wall that Trump wants to build, the Muslim ban that blocks borders, and those fleeing countries that are actually being bombed by the United States, this so-called beacon of hope and freedom, this attack on DACA, on all undocumented people, all these attacks are connected. They are part of a vile and oppressive system that attempts to stomp on every single one of us. And I want to say there is no difference between a good immigrant and a bad immigrant, a good Muslim and a bad Muslim. It doesn't matter if you pay your taxes or not. It doesn't matter if you're employed or not. It doesn't matter what you've contributed to this community. You have a right to be here. You have a right to healthcare. You have a right to travel without being worried that you're never gonna see your kids again. You have that right and we must demand that right, all of us, that right to live without fear of deportation and fear of assault. And that's why we march today. And that's why we march every day to get these demands and to end this terror, not just here in the United States, but abroad as well, overseas where people are being bombed by the United States and by other imperial powers. They're being bombed in the name of freedom. They're being bombed in the name of humanitarian crisis. Well, look here at the United States. Where's our freedom? Why are you going across the, the ocean to give them freedom? What about, what about us here? We need to keep doing this until those on the top understand that it doesn't matter how many zeros there are on your paycheck. You deserve all of these rights. And to do this, we need to understand that our struggles are linked. And that anyone who is oppressed is welcome to stand with us, is welcome to march with us. And that we demand that these protests, policy changes, these, these wars abroad end. But this means that when we call for no ban here, we also call 
for there to be no wall here and in Palestine. Calling for, calling for ending raids on undocumented communities and calling to end the policing of immigrants means calling for no more police murders, no more deportations, no more incarceration, not just here, but abroad in countries that we send military aid to. This means we demand, this means we demand justice for children like Ahad Tamimi, a 16-year-old Palestinian woman who was jailed for simply daring to stand up to her oppressor. And when we think of Ahmed, of Ahad, we don't stand with Ahad because she's a child. We stand with Ahad because she's oppressed. And that is how we need to think about our politics. Almost done here. These politics of solidarity, of unity in our struggles is so important because they will continue to try to divide us. They will continue to pit us against one, one another, to blame us for our own problems. We need to see through it, and we need to insist on building solidarity among our movements and our struggles. Because our liberation, no matter who you are, Muslim, Black, Jewish, Arab, it doesn't matter. No matter who you are, your liberation is tied to the liberation of those around you. And this, of course, didn't just start with Trump. Just like it's not going to end when Trump leaves the White House. This requires a lot more than that. This requires we change the roots that brought us Trump in the first place. I'm running out of time here, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump ahead, but I just wanna bring up a quote by Howard Zinn when he says, it's not about who's sitting in the White House. It's about who's sitting outside the White House, in the streets. It's about who's protesting. It's about who's striking. That's what creates change. That's where we need to be. And that's where we need to focus are organizing. And the black liberation struggle, you know, the legacy of the black liberation struggle, which has brought us out here today, is so important and it's taught us so much and continues to teach us. And I want to bring up Ella Baker, who Linda Sarsour mentioned earlier, is the architect of the civil rights movement. She has a great quote where she says, uh, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. And I think that's extremely important as we think about what is required of us in this next year and the year after. And I'll, I'll simply end by saying that moving forward, we need to remember that solidarity needs to be the politics of our struggle. Resistance is how we continue our fight. But confidence, conviction, and a deep belief that we have the power to change society. We have the power to create a society that is for us and by us. That conviction, that confidence, that is how we persevere. And that is how we win. Thank you. Hey y'all, salam alaikum. My name is Yasmin. I organize with Bears for Social Justice, which is one of the groups that helped to put this together and that started this a few years ago. Um, so I just wanted to give that group of people who did uh, put in so much work to make this happen today. Um, props. Uh, you've done an amazing job. I'm going to talk about similar uh, themes than, uh, to what uh, Sumaya and Rama talked about, um, specifically the often whitewashed legacy of Martin Luther King as an anti-war activist. And this is something that we don't often hear about. We hear about Martin Luther King asking for uh, integration, for civil rights, which are obviously fundamentally important, but we don't offer here, often hear 
about Martin Luther King's fight against poverty, against income inequality, and against militarism, particularly at his time, the Vietnam War. So I was thinking about that same speech uh, that Rama was thinking about, um, Beyond Vietnam, which was given not very far from here, and which was given against the advice of a lot of people close to Martin Luther King. Uh, people told him he should just stick to civil rights and not talk about war. People told him that it would jeopardize his relationship with the Democratic Party. People told him that it would upset Lyndon Johnson and it would lose him allies if he were to talk about war, if he were to come out against the Vietnam War. But he chose to do it anyway. And I think it's important for us to think about why he made that decision. One of them being the point that Rama made earlier about the ways in which the choice for our government to invest in killing people abroad has left us without the resources that we need, has left American communities, has left children in this country food insecure, has left children in this country lacking access to education, has left us without access to health care and all the rest of it. And the way that he spoke about the intensification of the Vietnam War after the, uh, the program against poverty that he had had so much hope in, he said, I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of, of a society gone mad on war. So I was increasingly compelled to see war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Those words are not any less relevant today than they were in 1967 when uh, Martin Luther King gave that speech. Maybe they're even more so. We live in a country that continues to spend uh, half of its resources on spreading violence and destruction around the world while it allows its population to go without the basic needs of housing and healthcare. The journalist Sanan Gopal, who uh, reports from all these wars, has, uh, has a lot of uh, pretty impactful statistics as to what this actually looks like. Um, and when we hear these statistics, I think it, it should convince us to never again believe that there just isn't enough for all of us to have our needs. A single strike, airstrike in Afghanistan costs half a million dollars. A single year of the U.S. war in Afghanistan costs $55 million. The United States has this relationship with arms companies, including Lockheed Martin, and they've asked them to develop a new and sophisticated fighter jet. And they've invested $1.4 trillion into developing that fighter jet. And to put that into perspective, um, a, a year, an entire year of Medicare and Medicaid costs are $1.2 trillion. So to think of what it costs to create a single jet and the investment that our government makes uh, in killing people and what would be possible here at home and even around the globe. Um, so while our government is spending its wealth on, on bombs, our wealth, on bombs, on bombing Afghan villages, on flying bomber drones over uh, children in Somalia and Yemen, we're told that here at home we can't afford to provide health care to everybody. We're told that we can't afford to keep public schools open. So while hundreds of schools are closing, the U.S. has uh, invested its money to build killing machines. These facts should drive us all to reevaluate the priorities of the society and to question the lies that we're regularly told over and over again that we just can't afford it.
But this isn't the only reason that we should uh, stand against war and militarism. In his speech, uh, Martin Luther King also warned us against the evil of nationalism and asked that Americans consider what, it lo what uh, Vietnamese people might be thinking of the war. He said, quote, they must see us as strange liberators, since so far we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. Let us think about that when we're thinking about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the bombing that's going on all over the Middle East and the eastern side of the world. Those of us who have been around since the declaration of the so-called War on Terror have seen, um, have grown up seeing a war increasingly, a world that's increasingly unstable and increasingly violent. We have seen a war extend beyond the Iraqi and Afghan borders to go uh, towards nations around the world, including seven countries under the Obama administration alone. We have seen refugees fleeing the violence that was created by these foreign policy decisions, only to run into fences and checkpoints that are stopping them from seeking refuge to get away from that violence. Set up by the same nations that were all too happy to bomb their countries for liberation. Right? We have seen that bombs don't liberate Iraq, they did not liberate Afghanistan, they did not liberate any part of the world. As a matter of fact, they have made us less safe, they have made us less secure. Um, we have seen that this happened under administration after administration. We have seen this happen from Bush to Obama to Trump, and it looks just the same. And when Trump is being the, 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 the orange, um, moron that we all know, the Democrats and the, the media elite are more than happy to make fun of him. But when he decides to send an airstrike into Syria, they start to call him presidential. These are values we have to question. These are realities about the entire ruling class of this country that we have to question. There is a consistent pattern between administrations and between parties. And just like Martin Luther King, we have to choose to challenge our so-called allies and tell them war is not part of our plan, war is not consistent with our plan for the liberation of Muslim people in this country and elsewhere, and for the liberation of immigrants um, and people of color and other oppressed groups in this country and elsewhere. It just isn't consistent, it's not compatible, we are not okay with continuing to wage a militaristic um, hegemony around the world. Um, by, by claiming that we are being protected. And we have to remember that it was only possible due to the fact that there was a decade and more of a so-called war on terror under the names, under the, the, the auspices of protecting Americans. According to both Democratic and Republican parties, right, they convinced us to be afraid and that is why it was possible for Trump to keep people out of this country and to establish a Muslim ban. That did not exist in a vacuum, that did not exist separate from the war on terror that's been going on for countries. So I just want to finish with this and I think it's really important. I want everybody here to look around because what we have here is what it takes to win. A multiracial, grassroots movement. I want to say it one more time. A multiracial grassroots movement. That is what it takes. So if you are white in this room, if you 
Muslim in this room, if you are a woman, if you are LGBTQ, I want you to know that you have more in common with each other, you have more in common with me than you do with Lockheed Martin. You have more in common with each other than you do with the corporations that celebrate war because they open markets and bring cheap labor and make it possible for them to profit. You have more in common with each other and you have more strength in each other and more power together than you do any politician who decides to join a party or to join a vote that is going to support war, that is going to continue cutting your health care, your access to welfare, your access to a safe and stable society. You have more in common with the millions of people, two million people in prison in this country. You have more in common with them than you do with the elected official who tells you they have to go to prison to keep you safe. They are lying. We have more in common with each other. And that's the fight we have to fight. Together, organize, go to the tables. I'm sorry I took up so much time, but... It's okay. All right, let's welcome Malak. Hi, I am Malaka Romain. Today I will be giving a speech. We may all come on different ships, but we were in same boats now. We are not makers of history. We are made by history. Take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. Thank you. incredibly um, near and dear to our hearts organization called Atlas DIY. All the folks are here today. Um, so I want to bring up to the stage uh, Jocelyn and Drusiga from Atlas DIY, uh, and they're the co-facilitators of the youth program. So please welcome Jocelyn. And My name is Priscilla, and as they mentioned, I'm a youth staff member at Atlas DIY. I want to take this time to remind you all why raising awareness for all causes that affect our communities are important, whether or not it affects us personally. This past Friday, January 13, 2018, the USCIS started to accept DACA renewals again. <laughs> When I received this news on Friday, I immediately began to share this information with my family, friends, co-workers, and to my surprise, most of the people I spoke to had no idea what DACA was. They haven't even heard of it. At first, I felt offended because I'm a DACA recipient. What? And without DACA, I wouldn't be working. What? I couldn't wrap my head around 
I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that people I ate lunch with, hung out with, and laughed with had no idea about something that was so important to me. But I had to catch myself because it was only last month when we went to DC that I found out about TPS and heard of the Clean Dream Act. I never really knew what it was until then. So how could I possibly be upset about people not knowing about DACA? which affects me and my community, but I hadn't known about TPS or the DREAM Act, which also affects my community, therefore affecting me. The moral of the story is, we shouldn't wait for something to hit home for us to actually acknowledge that others around us are being affected by it. We should seek and spread knowledge, always. Thank you. So, I'm short. <laughs> um, I'm also an undocumented um, person, however, I don't receive DACA. So, I mean, the news that came in made me really happy because again, um, Atlas EAY is a very important immigrant youth uh, community. And as Drusilla said, you know, what affects one affects us all. Um, and even I personally, like, have people and family members who benefit. Um, obviously, you know, it doesn't, I'm sorry, is there like, can not hear me? Um, <laughs> um, it, it, it affects me, uh, and it affects my family members, and it affects people that I know. Uh, previously at Atlas EY, I worked um, as a paralegal, meaning that I got to do people's um, applications. And once the news came out that I was no longer gonna continue, it really made us shocked because it was just something that really affected many, many, many of the young people that were around us. And, you know, even though it was really, it was really upsetting, we kept, we kept going, we kept going forward, we kept encouraging people, saying that our fight wasn't over, that our community was gonna stick together. And it made me really happy to be able to see you all come together for something that affects us all. Something that doesn't affect just one person, but everybody. And seeing all the people come together, but most importantly, I want to give a big shout out to all the young people who came and supported us and who were up at the front screaming and shouting and doing all the chants because that's what makes us, because that's what's really important, seeing the young people come together because the laws that are made today will affect our future, will affect the people that are coming after us. And it's just really powerful to see you all come together, especially, you know, being a young person myself and seeing all, all, all of my young people come together, seeing the, you know, the people I teach to about laws and about all these things, being upfront and shouting and being proud about it. As an undocumented, completely undocumented person, I am really proud to see you all come together, but also being able to kind of support each other. So thank you all for being here. country. Uh, my mother migrated here when I was 15 years old and you know she came here because of 
those simple words that we have in the Declaration of Independence that says, you know, that we have the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, as a single mother, she came here with my sister and I and, you know, searched for a better life for us, um, for a better future for her children and an opportunity for success. And there's so many young people today who have been punished by this administration and persecuted by law enforcement. And their only crime is that their parents came to this country and searched for a better life for them. So I want you to keep that in mind, you know, as, as we move on into um, the work that we're doing and standing up for folks who are documented, folks who are, you know, searching for TPS uh, relief. Um, so the next person I'm gonna call here uh, is actually Carlene Pinto, um, who is part of the New York Immigration Coalition, and we work very closely with her on these campaigns to defend immigrants across the city and you know, to continue to do the work that we've been doing around DACA and TPS. So Carlene. Hello everyone, hello, hello, good afternoon. And, oh, sorry, let me get myself adjusted. I'm here to speak on behalf of the New York Immigration Coalition. We are a statewide coalition that represents over 200 immigrant-led organizations across the state of New York. And so both Atlas, both, both Atlas DIY and Arab American Association of New York are both uh, some of our critical partners here in Brooklyn. And you supporting those organizations is critical to the success of the immigrant agenda across our state. And so when we say that we show up as proud New Yorkers, I wanna make sure that we're committing ourselves to show up for our disenfranchised brothers and sisters across the state. And so for folks that uh, have not had the pleasure of visiting the outskirts of Syracuse or Buffalo or Albany, those are not very welcoming areas for folks that are black and brown. And specifically under this administration and when we take into account some of the biased police practices of local municipalities outside of New York City, it can be very challenging. And so I challenge everyone to figure out when you say that you are from New York and you are proud, whether you have migrated here in the last few years or whether you're born and bred, when we say that we are New Yorkers, we think and we must show up for our brothers and sisters outside New York City. And sometimes it's a little bit more difficult, but if we have a means and we have a ways, we must make sure we're continuing to organize and mobilize. Uh, when, I, when we talk about Customs and Border Protection and other agencies that are targeting our communities, the egregious things that are happening across our northern border need to be spoken about. And so when we talk about the unconstitutional behavior of our federal government, what's happening in some of our smaller municipalities in upstate is, are just as egregious. Uh, in Buffalo, there's a local county sheriff that consistently goes unchallenged the last 20 years, but there have been more than a dozen fatalities in his local county jail. And so when we talk about some of these things and we talk about who we're targeting politically, we have to make sure we're showing up and we're not getting caught in the bipartisan politics rather than what does that county look like? Who should, what policies need to be passed? Because uh, right now we're seeing lots of Republicans that are peeling off from their party and they're voting on policies that we need them to vote on. And especially in upstate New York, we need to keep pulling off those Republicans to vote for policies that are just and will continue to provide uh, a more welcoming environment for our immigrants in upstate New York. So just a couple of very brief things about ways you can stay in contact with things that are happening. This week, Ravi Ragbir, who is a leader in the New Sanctuary Coalition movement in New York City, was detained, and he's facing deportation. 
I'm asking everyone here today to make sure you follow the work of New Sanctuary Coalition and support Ravi. Prior to my work with the coalition, I worked with the Riverside Church and a lot of poli police brutality, ending police brutality groups, and Ravi has been on the front line since I've met him in 2010, and we need to make sure Ravi comes home. This is another targeted attempt at breaking the spirit of sanctuary in New York City, and we have to make sure we keep resisting for Ravi. And the DREAM Act right now is on a critical, urgent time limit. There is a congressional budget bill that needs to be voted on by January 19th. The New York Immigration Coalition has two days this week that we are sending a bus to DC free of charge. We need people on those buses on Tuesday and Thursday. That will be our last attempt to make sure that we are pushing for the DREAM Act to be included in this budget. Um, you know, we just got this new ruling saying that folks can reapply, but we're still unclear what that means, especially for the 120 DREAMers that have been losing their status every single day until the injunction. And so it's crucial every day that everyone keeps showing up and we're showing up for TPS recipients folks that have temporary protected status 200,000 El Salvadorians had their status uh, essentially taken from them this week and we want to make sure we keep showing up so when TPS is under attack what do we do I don't think that Chuck Schumer hurt us everybody come on when TPS is under attack what do we do when dreamers are under attack, what do we do? When Muslims are under attack, what do we do? When refugees in upstate New York are under attack, what are we doing? When black lives are under attack, what do we do? And when the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is threatened by hate and divisiveness, what are we going to do? Thank you, everyone. And I've been with the coalition for two years, and working with some of these directly impacted young people has been one of the greatest gifts of my life. And uh, the next speaker, her name is Monica. I, she wanted me to introduce her as one of the youngest social entrepreneurs in the state. I'd rather introduce her as someone that helped found the CUNY Dreamers, a network that represents undocumented students and dreamers across every CUNY system, every CUNY school in the system, a young advocate that keeps marching to DC and she's now starting voter blocks to make sure that immigrant reps are being elected. Uh, so give it up for Monica, everybody. Good afternoon, everyone, and Carlene, thank you for that introduction. Actually, what I said was just say my name and my last name. Um, and I said that because, honestly, it didn't occur to me that saying my name and my last name is a problem in today's America. Before, it was okay because people needed to hear from more people like me who are going through the same situation. But now, my name and my last name could be the reason why I'm deported. Could be the reason why someone who's against immigration can find me where I am, especially because I'm very active on social media. So I'm here today to talk to you about you know, my story and what you can do. But I have three points. One of them is learning about who are undocumented immigrants. And for those that know who they are, understand that there are other ways that you can organize and do work. It doesn't necessarily mean putting your face your story at the front lines, but actually just going to school and surviving at home and maintaining a family that's about happiness and not about struggles and crying every day. And then two, I wanna say thank you to every single person that comes out, and especially in this space, I can see parents. Something that as a young adult, 
as the first one in my family who is undocumented with a bachelor's degree didn't happen. We didn't have a family relation that said, go to school, I will do whatever I can for you so then you can succeed. That's not the story of every single undocumented family. In my family, my parents were against me going to school because they were afraid that I would get deported. They cried every night up to this point, well, a little bit less now because I've grown and I'm a little bit older, um, that you know I'm putting my face that I'm fighting Trump. Every time she watches the news, she texts me, she emails me, she calls me. And I, what I've learned now as a young adult, for you especially if you're an organizer, is to reply and just say, I'm okay, I'm fine. Because as a young person, when I started doing this, I didn't reply, I didn't answer, and I got the more afraid, worried, and frustrated of not knowing what I was doing. So that's my message for you. And then, I really want to say, what is this issue causing in our community? It is not an issue just for undocumented immigrants or an issue just for uh, young adults. This is an issue for 11 million undocumented immigrants and Americans across the country. Because if you have friends who are undocumented in school and you don't know about it, and then you learn about it, that friendship turns apart immediately. Same way as in the family, same way as in the community, you're not going to be able to find solutions to crime, to creating new programs, if a community is not working together. If you have someone in your community who's afraid of coming forward. Lastly, I really want to ask you to continue to take action, and thank you for what you're doing here today. The only two things I want to ask you now, especially with what's going on at the federal government, in terms of the DREAM Act. There is the potential success of getting a DREAM Act that will help 800,000 undocumented immigrants. But there's also something that we could ask to be implemented in that bill that people are not talking about. And that's the age entry requirement for DACA, for the DREAM Act. Undocumented immigrants who came into the country before the age of 16 are the only ones that qualify for the DREAM Act or DACA. Who created the number? Nobody has been, well, some dreamers. But they didn't really create the number. The number was just a random number that was given. It was 14 at the beginning, then once it was 15, and then they settled for 16. Why? So, my ask to every one of them, and what I'll be doing for the next four days in D.C., is submitting letters to especially Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand and Pelosi to advocate if a DREAM Act is to come to the table, that a DREAM Act should have the age entry requirement of 18. So please, if you are there, tweet, send messages, call Congress, go online on our website. You can find all this information by just Googling DREAM Act and you will see what the ads are for several people. I'm up here, come and talk to me. There are buses that are going to DC. I'm happy to um, take you with us and show you what it is like to be doing this work from an undocumented perspective, from someone who is still not DACA and someone who is still fighting for a piece of legislation that will not directly help me but it will help my community. Thank you, everybody. I met Monica, actually, um, at a rally, and we both led the rally, and you know, she's one of the bravest young women I've ever met, and I will follow her anywhere, definitely. The next person we're calling to the stage is uh, Leader Restrepo. He's an activist and member of the International Socialist Organization here in Brooklyn. So, Leader.
seem like a pretty dark political moment that we're in right now, but we're all here, so that matters, and it's not a small deal. It's so important that we continue to chart a path forward from where we are today that includes a vision not only for black liberation, but full liberation. Sadly, electing Barack Obama as president did not bookend our successful transition into a post-racial social order. In fact, his presidency was the backdrop to a re-revelation of the deep and systemic racism that courses through this country's veins. Black Lives Matter emerged from an ongoing suffering and growing unrest, which shattered the illusion that the inclusion of a handful of black people into the economic and political establishment meant progress for all black people. It reminded us that the real struggle for black freedom was crushed by a fundamentally racist state, and what remained was a politics of partial accommodation, not full liberation. Even at its beginning, Black Lives Matter possessed a deep sense of where it was headed. The slogans began with justice for Michael Brown, but it quickly grew into a fight for the kind of world we wanted to live in. The Movement for Black Lives platform lays out an explicit program to end the policing and criminalization of black lives, a full economic inclusion, self-determined political power, and a deep understanding that ending racism in the United States brings into question a global social disorder maintained by interests incompatible with our own. To quote, we know that patriarchy, exploitative capitalism, militarism, and white supremacy knows no borders. We stand in solidarity with our international family against the ravages of global capitalism and anti-black racism, human-made climate change, war, and exploitation. But how do we bring this understanding into a powerful movement right now with concrete commands and a vision for complete liberation? It can often feel overwhelming how much we must fight for right now. We are often divided into our own struggles, attacked from all sides, Many of us are disorganized and inexperienced. The path from basic dignity to utopia seems impossible to traverse. But it is precisely these initial fights that lead us to that vision. It is also within those struggles for the basic rights of existence that people learn how to struggle, how to strategize and build movements and organizations. It's also how our confidence develops to counter the insistence that this society, as it is currently constructed, is the best that we can hope to achieve. Another crucial part of struggling now is remembering the experiences of those who came before us. When we look back at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the invaluable contributions he and others made during the black freedom struggle of the 50s and 60s, one of the most valuable lessons is the power of mass action. As Brandon M. Terry writes in the Boston Review, King noted in Why We Can't Wait that a nonviolent army has a magnificent universal quality. It can transcend many of the kinds of exclusion that other forms of political action place on participation, including those of gender, age, physical disability, education, and wealth. The mass dimension of protest allows for people of all walks of life to be more than spectators and instead be transformed by their resistance to oppression, rediscovering courage and self-respect in the face of assaults on their dignity. And these strategies weren't just about challenging unjust laws, though they were often rightly did so. They were about shedding light on an unjust social order and provoking its transformation. Most often, activists were challenging laws of social order, a complacent civility that saw a simultaneously naive and repressive peace over the direct confrontation of racial domination. One of the most crucial elements necessary to even dream of any of this is understanding the politics of solidarity. There's a lot happening right now and we're all suffering. And it can feel like our struggles are competing, but they shouldn't compete because they are connected. They express themselves uniquely, but can be sourced to the same interests of a class of rulers who must stifle us and divide us in order to control us all and reap the benefits of our collective exploitation and immiseration. Like how the same racist policing that targets black lives also targets immigrants. 
and how immigration in this country has always been conjoined to imperialist adventures around the world, whether through military or economy, which indeed aggravates the displacement of people of color internationally, placing them once more at the mercy of racist state violence when they arrive here to try and find new lives, but instead find nationalist drum beating and the threat of deportation and more displacement. We challenge this when we take part in a formidable anti-racist politics, enacting a solidarity that allows us to see the deep connections in our struggles. We are linked and cannot behave independently. We are strengthened when we organize together across struggles. Nothing terrifies an oppressive ruling class more than a little multiracial solidarity. But it's not simply about scaring a few rich people and politicians. Solidarity is about transformation from a world of division and alienation to one of harmony and full liberation. Thank you. speaker is Magdad Sadia, who is here on behalf of Anur School and other youth organizations such as Mass and um, Young Muslims. So please welcome Magdad. Hello everyone. Uh, I want to tell you guys about a passion of mine. Uh, I like to write poetry. I like to write in my spare time, whatever comes to my mind. And this piece I actually did not know. I was going to be performing it in front of you guys prior to anything. So I just hope you guys like it. Sovereignty seems to bring down sociability to a level of no return. Like when contemplating life's aspects and you begin to realize that you tend to settle for less because you don't know what you're worth. So look around you. You see, clearly unity is a deception. It's a large scale of perception of different points of views and people tend to be confused how human beings of every scheme could possibly unite into one. Because you see, people are deceived of the fact of the possibility of this occurring. But little did they know that this ideology of unity has been proven since the methodology of mosaics. A full masterpiece created from nothing more than different pieces of glass and stone reflecting our image of unity to be told. And how one is clarified as long as he's not petrified by different opinions. Because you see, people are terrified by difference, but don't seem to understand that within diversity there is unity to uphold. Counting differences and conflicting beliefs, man, people are so blinded by culture and color that they seem to miss the fact that the integration of the human race is in the hands of the soul. Man, we're so deprived of sight that we don't realize that the problems we face are fabricated by us. Uncalculated differences separating us from our main goal. Our minds are clouded by our own twisted ingenuity and desperation of proving self-worth to those unworthy. So take a step back and look at what you're doing. Because you see, your constant viability and lack of sensibility with no accountability leaves a liability that nobody answers for. And don't be mistaken, this can only be done one step at a time, but where's our inauguration? How do you expect the recovery of a laceration if you don't apply pressure to the wound? You see, I'm clearly not a physician, but I'm about to prescribe this world with a medicine called hope. 
Because with hope comes an image, and with an image comes a drive. And when people are driven with no limit but the sky, no one on this earth would be able to criticize our determination. Notice how I said our, not my. Conflict and confrontation will bear no rewards, so I advise that skin complexion nor this cultural facade should be our barricade. How can you find it in yourself to supersize this cliché? Clemency and clarity is what awaits this group mentality. Weakness in individuality is what we have witnessed in previous deeds. And strength in unity is what's still yet to be seen. And nothing else but life and prosperity can be foreseen. Because you see, we will never find stability as long as your accusations of impurity stay vibrant. So let it be known that this perfection might not be constant, but at least we could try or die trying. Um, isn't he amazing? Yeah, yeah. All right, everyone, we're very close to the end. The next people up here are Reba Franco and Eleanor Whitney from Love Trumps Hate Sunset Park. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to join our neighbors down here in Bay Ridge for this, for this event. Um, Love Trump's Hate Sunset Park is a grassroots organization that was formed in November of 2016. And in the last year, we've been able to accomplish a lot on a lot of different fronts. We've been doing environmental advocacy, local political actions, and Importantly for today, we've been focusing a lot on how to support our immigrant community in Sunset Park. So um, a couple of the things we've been able to do is um, having free community legal clinics. We had one on Saturday. We had 13 lawyers working pro bono. We helped 49 families get legal advice. It was really awesome. It was our third clinic. Every month we have a dinner where we invite immigrants into private homes where they can have a safe and welcoming environment and meet their neighbors. Jocelyn, you were there? <laughs> That's an ongoing event. We've had events with Muslims giving back, and um, we're working on a lot of different things. So I want to take too much time because I want to read something from the New Sanctuary Coalition. But if, if you are interested, and you don't have to live in Sunset Park to get involved, um, come talk to us or other members of Love Trumps Hate Sunset Park who are kind of over there. But um, you're welcome. <laughs> and now... <laughs> okay, so like Carlene mentioned last week, the executive director of the New Sanctuary Coalition was detained and they plan to deport him. Um, he's in legal limbo right now. That's Ravi Rockbeer. But I also wanted to mention that the week before, they also detained for deportation another leader of the New Sanctuary Coalition, Jean Montreville. So it's not one, it's two and they're trying to attack the sanctuary community, so it's really important. And, um, and as an act of solidarity with Ravi, we'd like to read a pledge that was sent out this morning by a new sanctuary coalition. And we invite you to take this uh, with us in the new sanctuary coalition is inviting people to record themselves, saying this pledge, and then send it in. But 
Uh, together, we acknowledge that the large-scale immigration to the United States is a complex, historical, global, and economic phenomena that has many causes and does not lend itself to simplistic or, merely or purely reactive public policy solutions. We stand together in our faith that everyone, regardless of race or national origin, has basic common rights, including but not limited to livelihood, family unity, and physical and emotional safety. We witness the violation of those rights under immigration policy, particularly in the separation of children from their parents due to unjust deportations and exploitations. We are deeply grieved by the violence done to families through immigration raids. We cannot, in good conscience, ignore such suffering and injustice. Therefore, we covenant to take public moral stand for immigrants' rights, reveal through education and advocacy the actual suffering of immigrants, protect immigrants against hate, racism, workplace discrimination, and unjust deportation, and demonstrate solidarity by accompanying them throughout the process of trying to remain in the U.S. and keep their families together. I would just encourage everybody to make a personal commitment to do one thing, to support our immigrant neighbors and our communities. Thank you very much, everybody. We have one last person coming up to share a performance with you. Rila Fahed, who is a, a youth of the Arab American Association Network, is going to share a piece with you. So if everyone can please let Rila perform and give her your respect. Assalamu alaikum, which means may peace be upon you all. I was extremely honored when I was asked to write and perform this poem, and I hope you guys all enjoy it. Wonder how you're supposed to grow with an ego dipped in gold. The world's never been anyone's to own. Hope your family's always protected, and may your loved ones never be neglected. They say, don't ask permission, ask for forgiveness. Most importantly, just make a difference. Adam believed in Eve. Could there be solace and greed? Truthfully, I don't know, but I need clarity. How do we move so carelessly in this world, knowing some of the dreams of the kids in Palestine will never unfurl? Capitalism is only concerned with pretty pennies and dimes, but God and love will forever have us intertwined. And you is all I believe in. Even if reality tells me I'm dreaming, I wonder what you think of me. The world has us moving differently. And if we're both reckless without sympathy, how will we be accepted? They tell us our colors make us different, but it truly makes us blind. But tell me, who will prosper if our nation is undermined? We are all created equally capable of, capable of love and hate. Remember, preference and variety aren't means for discrimination. It's not our differences that divide these nations, but our inability to accept them. We are all equal in the fact that we're all different. No, we're all the same in the fact that we'll never be the same. We're united by this reality that colors make us different, but we're oblivious in the reality that we are all held to this earth by the same gravity. We lie if we say we do not see color. We justify these words by brutalizing one another. People are in need of recognition. People getting shot.
shot because they're different. We never ask ourselves how all lives can matter when black lives don't, but we continue to rationalize our actions with reassuring points. Our nation is built on the ideas that all men are created equally. Most people don't even have the decency. They all preach that we must believe in life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but let's ask ourselves when we are ready to dismiss the haughtiness. Our our elders teach the young ones to be proud of who they are. I don't understand how we can do that when we're all so far apart. Dear Unity, our guardian angel in disguise, we were negligent in these times. We need you desperately to be sonder and be infected with serenity, to have realized our creed and have inner peace. May you overcome all your endeavors, and if you change, it's only for the better. May you overcome all your endeavors. We confide in God, for he is our only protector. Thank you. So we're closing our program right now. Um, and, you know, and everything that we heard from speakers today and just going out on the streets and celebrating this amazing figure, I just want us you know, to think about what is it that we want? What is our call to action? What is it that we are going to go out and do in these next three years, seven years, whatever it takes until everybody is free? And so I have my own list and I want you to add to that list. Um, we must demand from our government that they stand for the values of this nation. It just starts there. We demand for a clean dream act. The possibility of folks to have a path to citizenship. We demand for protections of TPS. We demand for the end of deportations and the separations of our families. We need to demand for police accountability and transparency. We need to demand that black folks are treated equally under the law. That poverty within our communities isn't an excuse for incarceration. We need to demand for refugees to be allowed in this country. And for the end of Islamophobic policies like the Muslim ban. And in order to do all this, you need to be able to connect to your local grassroots organizations. Organizations like the Arab American Association of New York. Follow us, follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, follow our work, come out to our actions. I also want to give a huge shout out to Atlas, DIY. All these young people that spoke today, these are the folks who are leading our movement. These are the folks who are the future of this country. And they're the ones who are here, who stuck around till the end of this program. So follow their work. Whatever they're leading, we must all just, you know, take a step back and just let them lead the way. So just don't forget that. And I, again, I just want to thank all the organizers of this amazing march, Bay Ridge for Social Justice, Fight Back Bay Ridge, South Brooklyn Progressive Resistance, South Brooklyn DSA and NYC DSA Political Committee, the Take on Hate Campaign, and my incredible staff, the Arab American Association of New York, and all the great staff that's put so much work into this. I'm going to bring forward Reem Ramadan.
who was one of the organizers of today's march. Really blessed to work with such a great community organizer. And I'm gonna have her close us out today. All right. Thank you guys. Can you guys hear me? I thank everyone, and I want to thank everyone again, but also I really want to thank our marshals. Thank you to all our marshals. Uh, people are still here. Thank you for, they brought us here in one piece, and thank you so much for that. And all my marshals are going to get this. I'm about to close us out in number nine. If you guys don't know what that is, whoever has the big chant sheets, you can open it now. I'm going to do number nine, okay? You guys are going to know what that is. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to use the microphone. Julia. Yeah. Okay, please. Alright. MLK was a freedom fighter and he taught us how to Thanks for listening, and thanks to the co-organizers of the march. One small correction, which is to correct the DSA chapter that helped out. It wasn't the Electoral Committee, but the DSA Immigration Justice Working Group, and South Brooklyn DSA. We'll soon be back with our regular podcasts, including our episode on community boards and our continuing series of congressional contenders, interviewing and chatting and going pretty deep into the weeds of policy with the candidates vying for the New York 11 Democratic primary our Congressional House seat currently occupied by Dan Donovan. Until then, stay free, Bay Ridge.